The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today we're talking with Lisa Ferentz. She's a clinical social worker in private practice for over 30 years. She is the founder of the Ferentz Institute and author of the new book, Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist Couch. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. Um, so how did you get involved in writing this book? Well, you know, this is my third book, and actually the process for this was quite different. Um, as a therapist, I noticed in the course of the week that I was saying very similar words of encouragement to a very wide variety of clients. And so just on the whim, I started to literally write down on little post-its some of those, you know, words of encouragement. And one day I looked at my desk, and there was a three-foot-high stack of post-its, and I realized that there's the content for my next book. So it evolved in a very organic kind of way based on a lot of what was unfolding in the course of my therapy session. Well, that sounds um, really encouraging. You know, when it comes from your own personal experience and what people need, obviously it's going to relate to people a little bit better. Right, just right. What we want. Yeah. Now, the title of your book is, um, you know, Finding Your Ruby Slippers. Um, where, where does that come from? So it does come from The Wizard of Oz, and if you remember in the movie, Dorothy spends kind of a whole movie believing that the wizard has the answers, right? The wizard is the person who's going to get her back home, and of course, by the end of the movie, when she gets to the Emerald City and she meets the wizard, she realizes that he's just a very short guy behind a curtain, and he has no actual power, and then there's this wonderful metaphoric moment when Glinda comes down and basically says to Dorothy, look at your own feet. You've been wearing the ruby slippers all along. Um, and I've always loved that idea because it really speaks to the work they do as a therapist, which is helping people to recognize that they really have their own inner wisdom and that it's not about somebody outside of them who has the answers or who has their ruby slippers. You know, that they're on their own feet. And so the whole premise of the book is helping people to be able to turn inward and to increase their self-awareness and their insight and to recognize that they have this incredible inner strength and resiliency and wisdom and that ultimately that's where we really want the answers in our lives to come from. Um, well, that, you know, I, I, that makes sense to me. You know, as a, a, a practitioner, I also find, um, you know, I can only guide people just like Galinda guides you know, Dorothy down down the path, but um, I can't um, make anybody do anything. And in the end, all the work is is what they do and what they find for themselves. And exactly you know, right. just guiding them on on their way, and and the changes come from them. That's it. You got it. Yep. Yeah. So, um, you know, in your book, you, there, there's a lot of, you know, little tips, and I think we'll just go through, um, you know, a lot of what, what you talk about, because I think that there, there are things that affect um, most people um, mm-hmm. on, on everyday life and that kind of thing. So um, can, can you just tell us one thing you talk about is that people are afraid to stand up for themselves. You know, that's definitely something that used to affect me in, in my life. I had to learn that um, as I, I got older that, you know, it's okay to say no and it's okay to say I need this or what you're doing isn't, isn't the right thing. But can you just talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure. I, think, I do think that there's kind of a correlation between the degree to which we can be assertive as grown-ups really has its connection and its roots to what we learned in childhood and in other, you know, pivotal experiences throughout our lives that either reinforce our right to use our voice or experiences that 
taught us very early on that it was not safe or not okay to use our voice and to stand up for ourselves. So if in the past you've had a lot of negative responses to standing up for yourself, it was ignored, it was belittled, it was invalidated, it would make sense that you would continue even as a grown-up to assume that anytime you try to assert yourself, there's going to be the same bad, you know, invalidating outcome. And what happens is eventually then you stop trying to stand up for yourself because it, it sort of feels like an exercise in futility. So I think how that got formed and reinforced or extinguished in the past, you know, plays a really strong role in what we wind up doing in adulthood. But as you just suggested, Rebecca, it's never too late, right? So you said that you began to learn as you got older about the importance of using your voice and setting limits and, and having boundaries. And so the exciting thing is that even if somebody's really struggled for a very long time with not standing up for themselves, it's still a skill that with practice and with support and sometimes with guidance is we want to be able to stand up for ourselves in ways that are assertive and not aggressive. So when you get that support and you get that guidance and you get that um, sort of compassionate person to help you, you know, on that road, the amazing thing is that people can really learn how to stand up for themselves. And as you know, it can pretty significantly change your life when you learn how to do that. Um, well, that that sounds um, uh, you know helpful. Um, one thing I'm wondering, though, I, I think it's really hard for people to realize. I mean, you mentioned boundaries. People don't always realize that that you know they need them or what they are or that they don't have any. So, can you explain what that means? Sure. So, boundaries are kind of the invisible lines that separate us from other people that speak to the degree to which we have a sense of privacy or safety or separateness versus the extent to which we feel that somebody is kind of invading our our space, our privacy, um, our beliefs, you know, our behavior. So we boundaries exist. I mean, we all have them. It's just some people put their boundaries very close. Some people put their boundaries very far apart. And so it's just being mindful of with any given person in any given situation, what are the parameters of safety that you need so that you can genuinely be okay. With people that you really trust implicitly, you know, you can allow people to come close. If it's somebody who, where you're not sure of their agenda or their intentions, or it's somebody who frankly has a track record of having hurt you in the past, you would need stronger boundaries, right? You would need to have a greater sense of separateness and private privacy um, so that you could feel safe and, and not feel that that person has the ability to... Um, step on your rights, so to speak, or um, invade your your sense of safety. So boundaries exist in all situations. It's just being mindful of where do you want to put them and using your voice to let people know where you need the boundaries to be. And sometimes boundary setting is as simple as saying to somebody, that's not okay, or no, I'm sorry, I can't do that, or yes, I'd be happy to do that. So that's a part of how we set boundaries. Um, well, I think that's important. Um, I know, you know, if if you grow up in a, a situation, you're, you don't learn that or, um, you know, you just um, aren't aware of it. Um, you know, and I, I my, my experience is a lot of women, um, you know, they are wanting to do everything for their family and they're not learning that, that they need to take care of themselves. So they're sacrificing themselves and they're, they're going past what they're capable of. And mm-hmm. um, they won't take time for themselves. And I know that's a really important boundary issue, although, you know, family is important and often comes first. Um, you're not going to be able to help them if, if you're burned out. Exactly right. Yeah. So part of what you're actually alluding to is the importance of balance, you know, with boundaries. It's it's certainly recognizing the value of helping other people, but at the same time, knowing how to balance that with enough self-care so that, you know, we, we only can give to others as much as we have within ourselves. And so I always use the analogy of like a, a water, you know, a well of water and all the different people in your life keep coming up to you with their buckets and their tails, you know, and you very willingly give water from your well. But if you don't at some point, pause and replenish the water in that well, eventually it just runs dry, and then you really have nothing more to give. So there always has to be that balance between what we're offering others and then the ways in which we are replenishing and re-energizing and 
making time for ourselves so that we continue to have more to give. Uh, makes sense to me. Um, one thing you talk about in your book is um, distinguishing between then and now. Can you explain mm-hmm. that a little bit? Sure. Um, in my experience as a therapist, a lot of the times the way people feel or their thought process or the behavioral choices that they make are actually rooted in then or the past. And in the past, if they felt disempowered or helpless or, or hopeless, they often take those past experiences and superimpose them on the present and assume that those same things will still continue to play out. It's funny, I just this morning was working with a couple where this was like really the issue front and center, where both the man and the woman in this relationship had been very, very badly betrayed and harmed by other relationships in the past. And so they carry that assumption that the person I'm close to is going to inevitably hurt me um, in the now, in the present. And so they make all these unfair assumptions about their current partner based on how prior partners treated them. So I try to help people to be mindful of making that distinction between the past versus the present and really taking the time to ask yourself, um, am I making a decision? Am I taking into consideration who I am today, what my current resources are, what my level of power and control and choice is now, or am I still making decisions based on the helplessness that I felt in the past? And I think one of the easiest ways that we can help people to make that distinction, as strange as this might sound, is to literally be able to ask yourself right now in this moment, how old do I feel? Because it's pretty amazing that when the past is superimposing itself on the present, when we ask ourselves, how old do I feel, the answer is usually much younger than we actually chronologically are. So that's kind of a quick way that I can help my clients to assess, you know, is what I'm thinking, feeling, or assuming really rooted in my current reality, or am I feeling seven years old, which means that the stuff that I'm assuming is really rooted in what's happened and what I've experienced in the past. So how can, you know, once we realize that that's happening, what can we do to, to change, um, you know, the feelings of then so that it, it can become something different for now? Right. So I don't, I don't know if it's about changing the feelings because my, my belief is that all feelings are legitimate. It's just that we don't have to lead from those feelings. We don't have to make our choices from those feelings. So we certainly can pause, take a moment, and acknowledge oh, wow, you know, this is a feeling that I felt when I was seven. Um, give ourselves kind of a current reality check. It's really not relevant to what's happening in my life right now in the present. I can certainly bring comfort to the feeling from being seven because, frankly, if that feeling is showing up, what that says to me as a therapist is it may still be unresolved in some way. And so it, it would be helpful to actually bring a sense of or a sense of comfort and, and a sense of reassurance by saying to ourselves, you know, I'm not seven. I am a adult. I do have power. I do have choices. I don't live there anymore. Um, you know, I, I, whatever's going to happen now, I can manage. I can handle. I'm not helpless. So there's that sort of positive self-talk that I encourage my clients to engage in. And then to be able to try to make the decision from what's going on in my current reality. So it's not about extinguishing the feelings from the past. It's about reassuring those feelings, bringing comfort to those feelings, but also having the realization that you're not going to make a decision from those feelings. Okay. Um, We're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Lisa Ferentz. She is the author of Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Lessons from the Therapist Couch. And we're going to be back shortly. Please tune in. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. 
The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. We are bombarded with information daily about happy life strategies, beauty products, and business success ideas. Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. Shelly will explore and recommend proven business ideas as well as show you how to use the law of attraction to create health, happiness, and a prosperous business. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we're talking to Lisa Ferentz. Uh, she's the author of Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist Couch. So, Lisa, before the break, um, you talked about um, positive self-talk and how that can help you know, bring you out of a, a certain situation. Can you just explain um, what that is and, what I guess, what, what the opposite would look like? Sure. So, you know, we all, whether we're conscious of it or not, we all have this sort of running tape that clings in our head and it editorializes and it comments on us and the world and, you know, whatever situation we're in. And what people don't realize is how much of the time that talk can be quite negative. It can be critical. It can be perfectionistic. It can be very judgmental. And so the idea of shifting to positive self-talk is, you know, being able to look at yourself and the world through a lens that is kinder, that is uh, more compassionate, that is less judgmental, less critical. And um, that tape, like that inner talk, really profoundly impacts our mood throughout the day and all the subsequent thinking that we do and the behavioral decisions that we make. So it is really important to be aware of the way we talk to ourselves about ourselves and, and to notice if it is highly critical, you know, how can we begin to talk to ourselves in ways that are gentler and kinder because that will have a better impact on our self-esteem in the long run. Um, well, well, that you know, definitely makes sense. Um, but, it, you know, my, my um, experience is that it can, um, you know, be very difficult to, to turn that around. I mean, I mean um, you know, you've... If, if you're used to saying a certain thing and if you've heard that either from, you know, family members or friends or society even, it's very difficult to train yourself to, to think in a different way. Do you have any tips for people so that they can figure that out? Well, I think, first of all, you're right. So we don't want to be glib about it. You know, it's not a simple process and it certainly doesn't happen overnight. But what we do know is that the way that we create new experiences is through repetition. That's the single most important thing. So once a person, the way that I have people work with this is just to identify one or two of their most common negative thoughts and then to come up with a positive reframe or another way to think about that thought. I'll give you a concrete example because I work so much with trauma survivors one of the really common thoughts is, I am bad. 
And so when that thought kicks in, if we can reframe that thought to instead say, I'm not bad, what happened to me was bad, you know, I am a fundamentally good person. And then it's literally about practicing each time the negative thought kicks in, we would pair it with the positive reframe so that we're literally reconditioning our brain to make a new association. And it does take practice, but if you make this a daily practice, it's quite remarkable how malleable our brains are and we are able to go to that new, more positive thought over time. It's really just a matter of repetition and practice. Um. Yeah, you know, and I, it, it's not, it seems like it, it's like everything else. You know, we can't do, change ourselves overnight. We can't change anything overnight, um, especially, um, you know, how we think and uh, things that have been ingrained in us for, you know, sometimes our whole lives. Um, so, the, as you say, repetition um, uh, will help us change anything, right, as long right. as we, we stick to it and, and continue eventually. Um, and I think, and, right, and I think we have to ask ourselves this fundamental question, which is, is this thought helping my self-esteem or harming my self-esteem? You know, sometimes it gets as basic as that. Once we have the realization that the thought that we're carrying really is detrimental to our sense of self-worth, that also can sometimes motivate people to be willing to shift that thought. Um, so so it's the, the same... Um you know, you know, pattern of thought here. If if we're um, having negative self talk, I mean, of course, it can come from, as you said, you know, trauma. So just one situation that can um, change how we think about things. But sometimes it does come from, you know, family members saying something, friends saying something, um, or of course, our society has, you know, body image is a huge issue and, and that kind of thing. Um, is there a way that we can recognize that there are those things in our lives that are causing us that harm? I know that's really difficult for a lot of people, especially if it's somebody that, that we love. Um, we may not be able to see that, that something that's happening is um, not normal or, you know, not, not healthy for us. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think that, you know, if, if you're like you're suggesting, if this is a message that you've gotten, you know, your entire childhood from somebody that you love and trust, the truth is you're probably not going to question, you know, the legitimacy of that message often uh, until you're in therapy. Therapy is one of the few places where people feel that it's safe enough to begin to reevaluate some of the core beliefs that either their family or their culture or society has kind of taught them. And, you know, that, that can definitely, it takes a lot of courage, I think, to be willing to take that half a step back and ask yourself, is this message, again, something that promotes self-esteem or is this a message you know, that in some way keeps me stuck or holds me back? What might have been the agenda of the person who gave me this message? Um, did they really have my back? Did they really want me to continue to grow? Were they threatened by the possibility of me growing and moving forward? So sometimes it's worth understanding, like, what was the intention behind the message that somebody in my life gave me? And when we understand the intention, maybe it wasn't about this is a way to encourage you or this is a way that you could continue to grow. That can also help us to at least consider the possibility of letting go of a message that really doesn't serve our best interest um, and enables us to grow either personally or professionally in our lives. But I think a lot of it boils down to can you access the courage to challenge and reevaluate those core messages? And so when you do challenge and reevaluate those core messages, um, I mean, how, how do you approach that if it's somebody who, who you know, you need in your life because they're a family member? Um, how, how can you, um, how, you know, change that relationship so that it's healthier? So I think, you know, the, the key thing there is that it's not black or white. It's not all or nothing. We definitely can realize that there are people in our lives whom we love and who love us and we definitely want to maintain a connection to them. It does not necessarily mean, though, that we have to be accepting of all of their core values. Um, it is okay, and I think we, as we get older, we can sit with this maybe a little bit more easily than when we're young, but the idea that we can love somebody, we can be in relationship with them, doesn't mean that we have to agree with all of their life philosophies 
all of the messages that they've given us. So it's a matter of holding on to the things that we really do treasure and value about that person and about that relationship at the same time giving ourselves permission to not necessarily agree with some of those messages that, you know, this is generational, right? So a lot of those messages they were given by their parents or even their grandparents. And it's quite likely that nobody's, you may be the first person to challenge those messages. And again, that takes a lot of courage, uh, but it's a good thing because sometimes when somebody finally challenges core belief, it can change the way future generations think and feel. So you can certainly preserve a connection to another person and you don't have to embrace all of their core values in order to maintain that relationship. Yeah. Um, well, you know, in, in your book, you, you also talk about letting go of things that, that we can't change, which is also, you know, kind of goes with that. I mean, you can't, you can't change the people around you. Um, you can just, um, you know, work on yourself and change yourself in, the, in that relationship. So w- when, there, when we are in those situations or, or other situations, how, how can we, you know, work on learning to let go of this? So I think maybe a more palatable way to think about it is it's not so much letting go as it is redirecting our energy and putting it into the things that we know we really can change, which as you've just suggested, ultimately comes down to us, right? We only have the power to change ourselves. We do not have the power ever to change anybody else. And so um, we can sometimes let go of the stuff that we can't change once we realize that no matter what we've done, nothing has actually changed because we never have that ability or that power to change another human being. So when we have the realization that we're wasting precious time and energy and effort, it's a matter of redirecting that energy and putting it towards our our own personal self-actualization and self-growth. And um, yes, I guess you're right. It is a letting go then of, of what it is that we can't change in others. Maybe it's an acceptance that um, what we do have power about or what we don't have power about. I find as a therapist that tragically people put huge amounts of energy into the stuff that they can't control and almost no energy into the stuff that they actually can control. So again, the goal is to redirect that focus and that effort and to put it towards the things where we really can truly change and make a difference. And that's about us. Well, and I think this um, also brings us to the part in the book where, you know, you um, talk about more and harder doesn't always work. You know, if things yeah. aren't, aren't working, you're kind of, um, you know, beating a dead horse, I guess. Um, so, you know, y- you you actually in your book have, um, it's a really good workbook where every chapter and every topic, um, people can fill out questions so that they can reevaluate themselves and see if, if this is some, that's an issue for them and, and what they, they need to, to change and, and work on. And, exactly. Uh, um, you right. know, yeah. the, book is, the book is designed to have all these journaling prompts for exactly what you're describing so that the whole goal is if I'm saying to you that you have this inner wisdom, then journaling becomes an opportunity to be able to access that inner wisdom and to really take that close look, hopefully in a compassionate and a loving way, because that's really the theme of the book, to you know, be able to turn inward and to look at yourself and to notice, is this something that applies to me? And if it is, what are some of the initial steps that I could take to begin to do things a little bit differently? Because as you suggest, one of the, the chapters is about if something isn't working, don't do it more and harder, do something different. And sometimes it's something different is letting go of trying to fix someone else and instead putting that focus and that energy on what can I do to, to lead a life where there's more um, inner peace and happiness and fulfillment. Yeah, well, we, we can't continue to do the same thing and expecting different results, you know. Right. So if something's not working, we do need to reevaluate and, and make the, those changes. Um, you know, and, and in your book, you talk a lot about relationships, and you know, there's we've mentioned family relationships and and all of that, and of course, they can be negative, but they 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 can affect us in different ways as well. And and can you just explain how they can, um, you know, play a role in our personal growth? Sure, um, I think relationships play a huge role. I think if the relationship is healthy, then it can certainly 
give us a tremendous amount of support. Um, this is where we get a lot of our encouragement. We all need to feel connected to other people. That's a core fundamental need that we have as human beings. When you know that someone has your back and you know that they'll be there to process you know, whatever's happened in your day, whether it's a good thing or it's a difficult thing, that can also give us a lot of extra courage so that we can take on healthy risks. And I think part of personal growth is about a willingness to kind of go outside of our comfort zone and to take those healthy risks that let us evolve both personally and professionally. And I think conversely, if we're in a toxic relationship or an abusive relationship, that can profoundly chip away at our self-esteem. It can create a lot of self-doubt. It can keep us very weighed down and make us risk-aversive so that we become afraid to take on challenges. We become fearful about, you know, embracing new opportunity. And when we don't embrace opportunity, we don't go after healthy risks then we can't evolve and we can't personally and professionally grow. So having somebody in your corner can go a very long way, you know, towards taking those healthy steps that enable you to continue to evolve as a human being. So we all need relationships. Relationships profoundly impact us. But again, at the end of the day, it's still going to boil down to how we talk to ourselves about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, and in your um, book, you say what you feel is your choice, um, which I think relates to that. Can you just explain that a little bit? Yes, you know, it's very funny. From the time you're very young, I'm sure everybody can relate to this, parents just very spontaneously will say to their child who's acting out, you make me so mad, you know, you're making me so upset. Um, and we learn at a very young age this sort of weird, untrue message, which is that we have the power to make other people feel stuff. And the truth is, is that no one makes us feel anything. People do all kinds of things. They can say all kinds of things, and we react. But how we react is ultimately our choice. So I can decide to get angry at what you're doing. I can decide to be forgiving. I can take it personally. I can recognize that it has nothing to do with me. That's what's going on for you. All of that is in my control. But to say, you know, my husband makes me so mad or my child makes me so upset is actually inaccurate because at the end of the day, we do get to decide how we want to react to and feel about, you know, what we face in the course of the day, either in our relationships or situationally or environmentally. And it's actually quite empowering to realize that the choice is ours to feel what we feel. Um, That gives us a lot of power back in our lives, as opposed to thinking other people upset me or make me feel angry. Well, you know, um, and I, I just want to elaborate on that a little bit more because, you know, I, I'm sure there's some people listening and they're like, well, every time I talk to so-and-so, they always say hurtful things to me and that makes me mad. And so how am I, you know, responsible for their behavior making that happen to me? Um, so maybe just to elaborate a little bit on that, on what that can mean in, in those situations. Right, so you are not responsible. You know, if someone else does something that's hurtful, you are not responsible for that. The person who chooses to make the hurtful statement owns that, I think, completely, 100%. What we then do with the fact that a person chose to say something hurtful is then what we own. So we could say something hurtful back. We could turn and walk away. We could calmly and assertively let them know that it's unacceptable for them to say something that's hurtful to us. See, there's lots of different options there and choices that we have in terms of what we do with the fact that somebody chose to be hurtful. So we don't own the fact that they chose that. We do own what we do with it and how we react to it. And sometimes the single best and and healthiest thing you can do is to, you know, we're back to the issue of boundaries again, to set that woman and to say, it's unacceptable for you to speak to me in that way, and if you continue to, I'm going to choose to walk away. You know, I'm going to choose to protect myself and not participate in a conversation that feels abusive to me. I think that's a very empowering thing to be able to, to say yeah. and do. Well, and and uh, it can be very difficult, especially if it's a, a family member or somebody who's been in your life for a long time, um, then, you know, you it's hard to say that to them because they're obviously not going to like that you're trying to change the the relationship. 
right? And, you, you know, uh, you're, you're right, uh, except my belief is that, you know, if it's a family member, they, they have even less of a right to say something hurtful to you. You know, they, 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 they should be even kinder because it is someone who's close to you in your life. Yeah, exactly. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking with Lisa Ferentz. She is the author of Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist Coach. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we're talking with Lisa Ferentz. She's the author of Finding the Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist Coach. So, Lisa, you know, when we're talking about all of this, I think it it brings us um, to the topic of depression and anxiety because if we're having negative self-talk and we're having relationship issues, obviously, um, you know, that can be something that, that is related to all of those and can be helped by all of those. So can you just explain what depression and anxiety is? Sure. And I think you're really right to, you know, to make that connection because depression, you know, manifests in a lot of ways, including lots of distorted negative thinking. Um, it also, we also diagnose it when we see a loss of interest in things that used to give us pleasure. Um, we see sleep disturbance and this can manifest as either somebody who's sleeping a whole lot more or somebody who cannot fall off to sleep or somebody who falls asleep and then wakes up many times during the night. We see issues around eating, and that can either be that they lose their appetite or they're eating excessively as a way to use food to self-medicate and to try to soothe those negative uh, feelings that they have with depression. I see a lot of my clients, when they're experiencing a depressive episode, they actually have very intense feelings of guilt. There can be excessive crying. They have a sense of worthlessness, of hopelessness and helplessness. So it's pretty pervasive. You know, it, it impacts their thoughts. It impacts, it impacts their emotional well-being. And we also know now that there can be a physical manifestation of depression that people describe a lot of body pain. And in fact, it's something that kind of brings people into the primary care physician's office. 
um, they think that there's something, you know, going on, going wrong that has to do with an illness, and oftentimes that physical pain or discomfort is actually a manifestation of, of depression. So that's the depression piece, and people become um, quite lethargic. Everything slows down. Um, it's hard for them to get stuff done. They um, don't have a sense of motivation. Um, so it's very, it can be quite debilitating. It, in, it can impact their work performance, their academic performance. It can certainly impact um, how they feel and how they respond in relationships. The other piece of this is anxiety, and anxiety is not a diagnosis, it's a symptom, and it's a symptom that usually relates to extreme worry, and then there are other physical manifestations that accompany it, um, heart palpitations, heaviness on the chest, sweating, um, heart um, thought racing, rumination, so anxiety is not an actual diagnosis, but something like generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder would be actual diagnoses that hold that experience of, of being anxious. And I think you were really right to suggest that when someone's got this very negative, perfectionistic um, internal tape going, that can certainly fuel either the experience of depression or um, the experience of anxiety. So these are, these are issues that certainly... I think benefit from psychotherapy. Um, if they're more moderate to severe, they do extremely well with um, medication as well as psychotherapy. Um, yeah, you know, and that makes sense. And, and you know, I have a lot of people that, that come to me and they say they, they don't want to take medication. And, and sometimes, you know, it is necessary if you're in a really bad place. And then to, to continue to do work so that if your goal is to get off of it, you're able to with the help of your doctor. But to, you know, to do more than one thing and to do everything that you need so that you can feel better and, and work your way through all of that as well. You're right, Rebecca. And you know what's what's interesting to me is that, and you're so right to suggest that there still, to some degree, is a stigma about both the diagnosis of depression or generalized anxiety disorder, as well as using medication for treatment. But what I find really interesting is that for people who are, are resistant initially to going on medication, they're typically doing other things to try to self-medicate. And often those things include drugs or alcohol or abusing food or um, gambling or spending 10 hours on the Internet, you know, gaming or, you know, just sort of staring off into space on the Internet or watching videos. So the irony is, is that even when people push back and say, oh, I don't want to do, I don't want to take medication, they're already doing things in the attempt to try to navigate and manage feeling their depression or feeling anxious. And typically, the stuff that they're doing, A, is not that healthy, and B, can actually leave them in a state of shame or can wind up ironically increasing the depressed mood or their anxiety. So the, the, the ironic truth is that going on medication in, in most instances is the most benign and most effective approach that we could take to treating these experiences. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, in your book, you also talk about um, learning to make the right decision for yourself and listening to yourself, which, you know, in that situation is something that I, I think is really hard to do. Um, how can somebody go about doing that so that, say, if they are self-medicating and I think they're dealing with it and they're trying to avoid certain, you know, medication and then they're, you know, drinking alcohol instead or, or TV or whatever it is, how can they realize what they're doing and make the right decision to help themselves in the right way. So here's where I think the irony of what's called the double standard really can come into play. It's so interesting that, you know, people sometimes make the wrong decision when it comes to themselves. Like, I'll just drink. You know, that's how I'm going to try to manage feeling depressed. But if you ask them, what advice or recommendation would you give to your best friend or to your child or to anybody in your life who you really love and respect, you know, would you encourage them to drink and be drunk as a way to manage their depression, they're very fast to say no. No. I could see how, no, that would not be a great strategy for my daughter, you know, or for my best friend. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I use a lot where where they can't really access enough self-love or self-care to recognize that 
um, you know, getting high or getting drunk or cutting or turning to an eating disorder, you know, is not in their best interest. Sometimes all you have to just, all you have to do is just ask them what advice or recommendation would you give to your child or someone else in your life whom you really love, and that's when they can separate it out and and often be quite wise and 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 um, you know come up with a solution that makes sense and that is that is genuinely um, productive and healthy and self caring. So I find you know going that route can can help them reconnect with their own best inner wisdom. It's just sort of sad that sometimes we don't think to apply the healthiest and most loving strategies for our own well-being, but we often do think about applying those strategies for other people in our life, and that's what we mean by a double standard. Yeah, you know, that that makes sense, and a good way to see outside of yourself as well, Um, because when, you know, we're we're often too involved in ourselves, and, and, um, you know, we can see other people better. Yeah, that's right. You know our own fog, our own thoughts, that kind of thing. Um, What is self-compassion? So self-compassion is really this ability to talk to yourself and to treat yourself with genuine kindness and genuine love, um, to let go of the shaming, to let go of being perfectionistic and hypercritical, to cut yourself a break, to um, reframe perhaps the missteps in your life as opportunities for growth and for learning rather than using those missteps as an opportunity to beat yourself up and to shame yourself further. So, you know, I think it boils down to this ability to both talk to ourselves with kindness and patience and to treat ourselves with with kindness and patience and and genuine love and self-care. You know, that... I think that's really important. It, it's it's very common that that people are very harsh with themselves, you know, and and um, you know, when as an example, when people will come to me for a follow up visit and say I've put them on a, a an anti inflammatory diet, they'll come and go, oh, you know what? Twice I I cheated, and mm-hmm. um, even like using that word cheated, you know, it's like okay, well you <laughs> you had something. How did you feel? And it's okay, right? Like, I, I don't use shame. Um, you know, maybe it didn't create inflammation for them, so it was okay, and maybe it did. So then they learned, okay, that food is definitely not something I can can have because my body doesn't respond well to it. And and I think it's, it's the same. You know, they're so hard on themselves that, that something happened, which, you know, we can, can do when we're working on our self-talk or when we're working on our relationships for people where it's just not always the perfect way that we would like it to be. And, um, and that's okay because it's not going to be. Right. And, you know, just staying with the example that you, that you just used, Rebecca, you know, it's interesting that what, what your patient focused on were the two times that they deviated from the plan, but what they're not really focusing on is that 50 times they followed the plan, you know? And so it's the lens that we're looking at things through. And I know that certainly, you know, in in my office as a therapist, it's so common for people to immediately want to report the one negative and, and kind of completely ignore, you know, the 25 positives. So, um, and I love what you said about not using shame because I think from a cultural standpoint, people have this mistaken idea that we can motivate ourselves through shaming. And there's so much research that points to the reality that that absolutely does not work. And that when we beat ourselves up and we shame ourselves, we're actually less likely to then follow through with the healthy, good choices because now we feel crappy about ourselves. And if we feel crappy about ourselves, we lose motivation, you know, to want to make good choices. So most yeah, we, we should increase our you know, depression because we, you know, yeah. we slipped a couple of times on whatever path that we're on, whether it, you know, the food or the we're changing our thought pattern or relationships. And um, we are human. And, you know, I, I, try, I try to tell people that as well, that, you know, you're human. And, and it takes a long time to change a pattern and to change who yeah. you are or, or how you're thinking, what's, what's happening. And it's not going to happen overnight, and it's not going to ever be 100% because it just never is. You know, right. there's, there's, that's what the beauty of being human is, is that we're, we're not perfect. 
Right. And along those same lines, what I often tell my colleagues is it's really not about reinventing yourself because I think that's so daunting and overwhelming. It's about reclaiming, you know, the parts of you that really know how and want to be self-loving and self-caring and self-compassionate. So it's not like, you know, somebody comes into therapy, they come into your office and it's like, how do we reinvent who they are? There's already really great stuff there. And it's about helping people reconnect with their wisdom and their resiliency and their creativity and their strength. And, and then, you know, sort of expanding on, on the great facets to who they are. And you're absolutely right to suggest the goal is never about being perfect. I mean, I don't know what that is. I don't think it exists. I don't think that's ever a reasonable goal. Um, you know, I think it's actually important to, at times, make mistakes because that's where we learn the most. And that's where we, there can be incredible growth. You know, if everything is, quote, perfect, um, we, we tend to sort of stay where we are. And, and there is no additional growth. So we really do make the most amount of growth and change when we're in this kind of state of either confusion or disequilibrium or we've been thrown a curve or something didn't work out. You know, that's when we really have these amazing opportunities to grow in very big ways. So I think if we reach perfection, we're sort of screwed. Like there's nowhere else to go, you know, and, and the personal growth is over at that point. Yeah. Well, and how do we know what perfection is anyway? Because right. my idea of what a, a good relationship is would be different than the next person's because they have different needs than I do. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure there there is such a thing either. I think we're all just, um, you know, trying to get through this life without being hurt as much as um, we maybe were in the past or, or causing hurt as well. Good, yeah, I agree. We're all on a path, yeah. that's for sure. Exactly. Now, if anybody has any questions or wants to find your book, is there any way that they can do so? Oh, sure. Um, so all of my books are available on Amazon, um, but I also want to invite people to go to my website because um, there's a lot of free resources there for them as well, and that is the Ferencinstitute.com. Maybe we'll spell Ferenc because I know that sounds weird on the radio, but it's F is in Frank, E R E, N is in Nancy, T is in Tom, Z is in Zoo. So the Ferencinstitute.com, and they can also follow me on Facebook and LinkedIn, again, through the Ferenc Institute. And in addition to the books, there's lots of free resources that I put out for people. Because we're all, as you say, we're all on the same path, you know, wanting to take steps forward, wanting to learn new ways to grow and to heal and to hopefully make a positive difference in the world. So I like to put out articles and videos and links to resources that enable people to um, continue on that healing journey. Well, that's awesome, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great show. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for the work that you're doing. And thanks, everybody, for listening. I want you to make sure you make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. 